Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pagan. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, unions allege a charter violation against wage caps for public service workers. Also in court, young activists lay out how the Ford government's climate targets are harmful and therefore discriminatory against youth. Mounting opposition for stronger mayor powers in Brampton. And more clarity on what alternate level of care will look like for seniors being forced out of hospitals. Also, what if the next leader of the Ontario Liberals isn't currently a Liberal? Intrigued? So are a lot of other people. It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2022, so let's get to it. Hi there. Hello. Kind of good to be back with you, uh, not in a broom closet, not a, <laughs> not uh, in my attic, but uh, actually face-to-face again. We might get used to this. I was just going to say that. I could get used to this. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine indeed. Uh, we are joining our listeners once again. I mean, recording this in person, but also uh, coming back to their ears after the legislature uh, held tributes to the Queen. And of course, the state funeral would have just happened yesterday. And we'll hear more about that later in our podcast today. Meantime, our first order of business. The Ontario Federation of Labour has made its case against the well-known and rather controversial Bill 124. That happened last Monday. Now, John Michael, as we often have to do when we discuss Bill 124, we have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, those of us who work at TVO, who are, of course, paid by the Finance Minister of Ontario, uh, are caught up uh, in this bill, and therefore its restrictions do apply to us here. Bill 124 stipulates that certain public servants will be limited to 1% maximum wage increases every year over a three-year period. Royal Assent, which basically means the lieutenant governor has signed off on this, came back in November of 2019. It also applies to nurses and teachers, among others, but notably not to municipal public service workers and police. Colin Bauman, one of the two OFL lawyers, says it erases real collective bargaining leverage due to uh, predetermining the uh, rates of increase uh, and argues that it is unconstitutional. Uh, The Supreme Court of Canada has found previously that uh, the charter right to free association does include uh, some measure of protections for union collective bargaining rights. Uh, Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, uh, also says that Bill 7 is sexist by nature because it uh, tends to fall most heavily on the parts of the public sector uh, that are uh, heavily represented by uh, female workers. Interesting arguments. The big question, of course, at this point is what happens when those three year periods that the bill is meant to deal with, what happens when those periods elapse? Uh, Well, of course, some of them uh, may get uh, renegotiated. The government has not repealed the bill as uh, unions and the official opposition, uh, well, all three opposition parties uh, have uh, asked for. Uh, So the the bill may continue to bind further negotiations. But obviously, when we talk about teachers, for example, the government is currently involved in negotiations with teachers and other education unions. Uh, So it looks like they are uh, trying to keep the way 
wage increases uh, low, but maybe not quite as, so low as that 1% figure that is spelled out in the law. Uh, we will probably get more clarity about what the government intends to do going forward when the legislature returns in the, uh, later in the fall with uh, a fall economic statement. Uh, that would be like a, a mini budget. Of course, they just passed the actual budget budget. So uh, kind of, we'll see uh, a more detailed financial statement for the year uh, coming in the fall. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, the tension behind Bill 124 is pretty much as follows. The government is trying to get the province's deficits and spending under control. And since about, I think, 65 to 70 percent of what the government spends is on salaries for public servants and members of the broader public sector, that's as many as a million people, all told. Well, if you're trying to save money, you got to hold the line on what you pay public servants. Having said that, the government has also spent the past two and a half years telling nurses and doctors and teachers that they are the great unsung heroes of this pandemic and that without their Herculean efforts, we'd have been up you-know-what, you-know-whose creek without a paddle, uh, in which case, how can you pay our unsung heroes 1% salary increases per year, particularly in a world of 6 or 7 or 8% inflation annually? So... That's the conundrum. Yeah, I just want to you know hone in on the uh, inflation angle here because this was already going to be politically difficult coming out of the pandemic to to try and hold so, at least some of these uh, unions to one percent increases. Uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking specifically of PSWs and nurses. Uh, with the added inflationary pressure, people are looking at pretty substantial cuts in their real take-home pay. Um, And that is before you even get to for example, housing costs for people who uh, rent in Toronto, for example, a lot of lower income workers uh, who might be part of, you know, a a lot of nurses, for example, Uh, the Toronto Board of Trade talks a great deal about how it is becoming too expensive for, you know, necessary vital workers to Toronto's economy to be able to afford to live in this city. (laughs) Increasing their incomes, it's a very complicated question. I don't deny that the government's uh, uh, under some pressure to, to constrain spending. Uh, but this is just a, a really tough political problem from the, for them to solve. And the other thing, of course, is that nurses are leaving the profession. PSWs are leaving the profession. People are not going into these professions as they once did. And if you're trying to attract more people into these professions, which we will need more of in the future, particularly as society ages, um, you may have a tough time doing that if you're offering people who go into those p- professions 1% a year. So there's lots wrapped up in all of this. Absolutely. Also in court last week, uh, there was a charter challenge by uh, a number of young people against the government of Ontario for uh, their climate policies, or as these people would argue, the the government's lack of climate policies. Uh, These uh, activists and their lawyers say that uh, young people, youth, and in particular youth under 18 years old, and future generations will bear a disproportionate burden of climate change's most devastating impacts due to their unique characteristics and the fact that the escalating nature of the impacts of climate change means the most devastating effects will occur during their lifetimes. Uh, That from the factum for the advocates here. They are alleging uh, two substantial uh, charter breaches. One of their Section 7 rights, that's the the right to security of the person, uh, and one of their Section 15 rights, which is uh, discrimination, uh, in this case, against uh, people due to their age. They say that the climate plan, which has uh, weaker targets than the ones that the Tories inherited, is going to allow for more climate change to happen, which will mean worse effects from things like wildfires and insect-borne disease and all of the things that we know that climate change will uh, do to Ontario. 
The Ontario government, on the other hand, is asking the court to dismiss the lawsuit. It uh, had tried to get the court to summarily throw out the lawsuit before it could even uh, be heard. Uh, the court did not do that. The government is now saying that uh, really this does not address an issue that it is proper for the courts to hear, uh, that if the court were to accept these arguments, it would effectively put judges in the position of making uh, energy and environmental policy for the province of Ontario, something that courts uh, really shouldn't be in the position of doing. They also uh, strike a tone similar to what we've heard from, uh, I would say, federal conservative parties, uh, both when they were in government and uh, when now that they are in opposition, uh, arguing that uh, Canada's and Ontario's greenhouse gas emissions are just not globally significant. And there's a legal point that they're making here, which is that if Ontario cannot regulate the 98% or whatever of greenhouse gas emissions that occur outside of our borders, and clearly the Ontario government cannot, then it can't actually stop the harms that are being alleged. You know, there's also the novelty here, I would say, that, you know, the government is, is saying that there is no recognized charter jurisprudence saying that uh, courts should protect the rights of Canadian citizens who are not yet born. Um, that's just totally new ground. The court is uh, giving it a fair hearing. They did not dismiss the case, as I said earlier. Uh, but everybody agrees, including uh, the people making this application, uh, that they are asking the courts to do something new and, uh, frankly, untested. I kind of like this story. I think it's very intriguing. And I like the fact that these young people are coming forward and, you know, testing out their political slash legal rights in court. And yeah, you're quite right. We'll see how the court re reacts to all this. Knowing you as I do, I assume that you have perused every period, comma, and exclamation point in the filings before the court. Anything else in there you think we ought to know about? Well, here's one thing. Um, can you think of any recent judicial decisions, uh, perhaps from our southern neighbors, that involved the rights of children not yet born? Well, uh, for sure. Roe versus Wade, the overturning of that by the uh, United States Supreme Court, for sure. Right. And so the lawyers for the young applicants in this case do go out of their way in their factum to say that while they are arguing for the courts to protect the charter rights of future generations, they are very much not trying to argue for uh, personhood rights for the unborn because they know how controversial that would be. That would be a different kettle of fish. Yes, indeed. Okay, moving on. Our third issue. Press conferences are not unusual at Queen's Park, of course, but they usually involve a member of the Ontario legislature when they happened. Well, last week, the legislature was visited instead by Brampton City Councillor Jeff Bowman, and he had a request for Premier Doug Ford. He said he doesn't want the Ford government to give so-called strong mayor powers to the current mayor of Brampton if that current mayor of Brampton wins re-election in October. My request there is that... Uh, that the province take a very, very hard line on extending these powers to um, other mayors in other cities, uh, in particular the city that I'm from, uh, city of Brampton, where Patrick Brown has demonstrated reasons why uh, strong mayor power should not be given um, to, to certain individuals. Now, before we get any deeper into this, i got to do one of these in the interest of full disclosure. My wife and Patrick Brown are friends. She ghost wrote his book. So you're not going to get any commentary from me on this one. I'm going to plead the fifth, so to speak. Uh, but I will put a few questions to my partner here in order to sort of tweak out this story. And let's start with the basics. The so-called strong mayor powers. 
What's that a reference to? So this is Bill 3, the Strong Mayors Building Homes Act that was passed by the legislature more than a week ago. Uh, It may actually be the last piece of legislation anywhere in the world that was signed into law under Queen Elizabeth II's name because it was granted royal assent only hours before her death. Uh, But we are here to talk about what it does. And for the purposes of our conversation, it's important to know that so far it only applies in Ottawa and Toronto, Uh, though the government has said if it works well in the province's two largest cities, they will expand it elsewhere. And this is the problem that Councillor Bowman came to speak about because he obviously has some thoughts about whether it should be expanded into Brampton. Correct. Uh, So what the law does in Ottawa and Toronto, Bill 3 gave the mayors two new types of veto powers over council decisions. Before Bill 3 and in every other municipality not affected by Bill 3, mayors are just one vote on council. Uh, different councils can give the mayor more prominence or not, but for the most part, mayors have to rely on persuasion to win a majority of votes. With Bill 3, the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa will be able to veto two kinds of matters. Uh, the first is specifically about the city budget, where the mayor is going to be able to draft the budget, submit it to council and then veto any modifications they don't approve of. That really is a big deal on its own. And I suspect it'll, in time, we will see it uh, really change the way that cities are governed. Um, But for more general matters, the mayor will also have the power to veto items on the council agenda if they believe they'll impede a, quote, provincial priority. The law does not spell those out explicitly, but the Ford government has said that getting more housing built and accelerating transit projects are key priorities. Unlike the budget veto for provincial priorities, the mayor can only veto the final item. He can't stop people from amending it. So that could lead to some shenanigans at council meetings uh, that I will be watching for. Um, And there is a process for overriding these vetoes. Uh, Two-thirds of council need to uh, vote to override a mayor's veto within 21 days. Now, for what it's worth, these are pretty much the provisions that are in place in many big American cities, such as, surprise, surprise, not really, Chicago, where the current premier of Ontario has had a family business for a very long time, and he knows how politics works in Chicago, and that's the system they have there, and he prefers it. So that's one of the reasons we're getting it here. Anything else you want to point to in this? Yeah, there is something else we've talked about before. Uh, Bill 3 also changes the relationship that the municipal civil service have to city council. Uh, For the high-ranking civil servants like the city manager, they would now be uh, hired and fired by the mayor and not city council. And the mayor would have more power to give direction to the the municipal public service. Right now, policy is made by council and the staff try to implement it as best as they can, but they can't take directions from the mayor uh, as a single individual. And this is an issue in Brampton as we come full circle here because? Well, at this moment, it isn't. Uh, The law doesn't apply there. Uh, But for context, in the last four years in Brampton, we've seen uh, a few different allegations of ethical breaches against Mayor Patrick Brown, including from city staff. Uh, Brown also settled a defamation case with CTV News about the network's allegations of his sexual misconduct this past summer, uh, just at the beginning of the conservative leadership race. No money was paid out by CTV, but they did make a statement about regretting some of their reporting. Now, in the press conference last week specifically, uh, Bowman urged the Ford government to intervene in what is basically a Brampton municipal matter. The matter being Bowman's, uh, let's call it discontent with how an audit that he brought forward was cancelled. Bowman wanted the audit because of overspending on a project to get a university built in Brampton, a university campus, I should say. He's now calling for the province to restart that investigation. The mayor took advantage of uh, a councillor not being at City Hall for the votes, and him and four other councillors who have supported him over the past four months voted to stop 
the forensic audit, to go no further with payments on the forensic audit, and to accept the interim update as the final report. And, you know, I, I couldn't believe it when that happened. Um, this is, this is uh, in my terms, a, a cover-up of what has really happened with this audit. We reached out to Patrick Brown's office for comment and his director of communications, Gary Collins, got back to us with the following emailed statement. Quote, Mayor Brown believes Councillor Bowman should pay back the money that was wasted in the numerous investigations he has supported. It was widely inappropriate to have an investigation led by councillors, end quote. Uh, and there, Collins means an investigation led by councillors against a sitting member of council. But some would say this raises the question of what happens if strong mayor powers fall into the so-called wrong hands. Brown is not alone in being the mayor of a large Ontario city who's had his conduct questioned, of course. Uh, in Toronto, you have Mayor John Tory and his relationship with the Rogers family and the Rogers Corporation. Uh, and in Ottawa, you've got Mayor Jim Watson and his uh, involvement in the uh, procurement of the light rail transit system there. Uh, both men uh, have those questions raised. You you really can't spend very long in power at all uh, without making some people angry, without making some decisions that people are going to question. Uh, and the strong mayor powers really just put an additional focus on that. Well, I'm already on the record as saying that I think the best mayor's race in the entire province will be in Hamilton. You've got Andrea Horvath, the former NDP leader, against Bob Bratina, the former mayor, and Keenan Loomis, who's the former head of the Chamber of Commerce there. That's going to be a great fight. But I guess we should keep an eye out for Brampton's race as well, given the subplots that we have discussed above. Election Day, of course, October 24th. Uh, wait, wait, wait. I, I mean, I know that we have to discuss Hamilton at least once, but... It's, it's, it's the law of the province, I believe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you catch the bit about the uh, Amalgamated Transit Union having two different endorsements? I did see that, yeah. It's the, like the National Union is endorsing one candidate and the local in Hamilton's endorsing another. Yeah, specifically the National Union is endorsing Andrea Horvath and the local ATU affiliate is uh, endorsing Bob Bertina. Uh, not quite to me, as funny as the time that Hazel McCallion endorsed the Progressive Conservative Party generally, but also endorsed Charles Souza, the Liberal Finance <laughs> Minister right. specifically. In Mississauga, that's right. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I, I do love these little stories. Is that called trying to have it both ways? Uh, well, I think we should definitely be calling it that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We also want to update our listeners on Bill 7. We've talked about this law before. This is the law that the government passed that will allow them to uh, move hospital patients out of hospital beds once they have been designated as an alternate level of care. This is the uh, term of art, meaning that they uh, no longer need the care that only a hospital can provide, but uh, they should be moved to a long-term care home or, or some other more appropriate setting. Uh, if somebody has been discharged from a hospital, they could be charged uh, $400 a day if they refuse to move to a long-term care home. Uh, people could also be moved uh, as far as 150 kilometers away if they are a patient in northern Ontario, uh, 70 kilometers away for people in southern Ontario. Uh, these details were published uh, actually on the day that the legislature adjourned last week. Uh, they adjourned uh, after tributes to uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II. It was one of the last uh, major items that the government announced uh, before. Uh, they did adjourn uh, until October 25th, actually. MPPs will come back to the legislature the day after the municipal election, which, as Steve already mentioned, is going to be October 24th. You know whose birthday it is, right? October 24th? October 24th, believe it or not, is Andrea Horvath's birthday. Oh, 
Ohio? I thought, isn't it also like United Nations Day or something? That I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but I do remember the curiosity of the federal NDP leader, Tom Mulcair, and the provincial NDP leader, Andrea Horvath, both having birthdays on October 24th. And I'm sure Andrea Horvath hopes that uh, she gets a birthday present this year and in the form of a new job. But that's another story for another time. And um, yes, United Nations Day is October 24th. You, I just Googled you it. You Googled that that, that quickly. I'm deeply impressed. That was very fast. I, I went to a school, a high school here in Toronto, <laughs> where United Nations Day was something we oh, observed. Okay, okay, very good, very good. Oh, I guess we should point out one thing. The government did compromise here a little bit on the long-term care bill. Uh, the, the initial estimates were that they were going to charge people $1,800 a day to stay in those beds. They've brought it down to $400. It's still going to be way too much for some people, but... They did move. The flip side, however, though, I think is that at least for some of the uh, people I've seen speak up about this, uh, the the distances that people might be moved are still uh, quite concerning. I mean, we, we talked about this last time, you know, 150 kilometers in northern Ontario, that could be a really big deal. And... Um, you know, it, it, it interacts with so many of just the realities of living in the north, including like sometimes in the winter roads get closed and somebody might suddenly have to detour a long distance. And what you think might be a two hour trip to the see your loved one could be much longer. Uh, just the, the practical realities of this, I think, uh, could end up being uh, very difficult for some families. And when families have those kinds of difficulties, they talk to reporters about them. And so I, I suspect that the political impacts of Bill 7 have not uh, stopped yet. That's our Bill 7 update. Let's do one more item here. And that is if people go to our website, tvo.org, and click on my picture, they will see a column I wrote last week on the possibility that the best candidate for the vacant Ontario Liberal leadership may, in fact, not be a Liberal. Now, let me briefly lay out the case here, and then I'm going to get John Michael to comment on it and tell me why he thinks I'm wrong. No, who knows? You might think I'm right. I don't know. We'll see. The Liberals, I'm going to suggest, are in trouble. They've had two elections in a row that they have failed to hit official party status. That hasn't happened to the party since the 1940s. There is no obvious front-running candidate for the vacant leadership, right? Justin Trudeau is not waiting in the wings as he was for the federal Liberals, uh, whatever it was, eight or nine years ago. The Green Party has been contesting elections in Ontario for 37 years, and they've only ever been able to win one seat. That's Mike Schreiner's in Guelph, which they've won twice. They came fourth in just about every other riding back in June. Their best chance to win a second seat evaporated when they failed to win Perry Sound Muskoka with a very well-known candidate who I think was vying for the seat for the, what, fourth or fifth time, something like that, Matt Richter? Okay, Green leader Mike Schreiner is widely respected in the province, and he's not one of these guys who's sort of stuck in the tribal politics of today. He's a kind of a happier warrior. Question, what if he ran for the liberal leadership with a view to merging the two parties? If he won, he'd make the Liberals greener. Personally, I think he'd have a shot at a bigger prize than simply winning one seat every time. Liberals respect him. If he were able to pull this off, the progressive vote would not be split three ways every time among Liberals, Greens and New Democrats, which, of course, who loves it when the uh, anti-conservative vote is split three different ways? Conservatives love it. So that's the thesis that I throw out there on the website. Uh Okay, John Michael, discuss. Well, so I guess I would say a, a few things here. One is that, you know, you have identified uh, a real problem and the liberals need a solution to it, right? They, like, we would be having a totally different conversation if the liberals had even managed to win official opposition status in last 
summer's election. They did not. And and the party is, is beginning this process of having a real thorough postmortem uh, and, and how they come back from the, the current situation they find themselves in. Uh, the Green Party might be the most offended by <laughs> by this suggestion because, of course, they see themselves as not just a left-wing party, not just a progressive party, but they, they try to uh, frame themselves as totally sort of orthogonal from the t- standard left-right political spectrum. And they, I, I think many uh, many of our green listeners would, s- would say they, they don't like the idea of just being lumped in as the, the you know one of the other opposition parties. And the other thing I guess I would say is that, you know, you're right that there is nobody... Uh, waiting in the wings yet for the uh, provincial liberal leadership, uh, though we are starting to see some, let's call it serious-ish scuttlebutt. (laughs) Uh, And I think of... um Nader Smith, the federal MP for Beaches East York, uh, my MP as it turns out, uh, he has recently been uh, reported as as not just thinking about it, but seriously discussing and starting to assemble a team to run for the Ontario uh, Liberal leadership. Um, so. I think all else being equal, you would assume that the liberals want a leader who comes from inside the party. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be Erskine Smith. Uh, there are people who are not actual, you know, uh, liberal partisans in in the sense of like currently holding elected office, uh, who, whose names are also being floated. But um I will say I'm skeptical, Steve. Let me put it that way. Uh, uh, we're, we're in the same room, and, and I'm going to stay polite about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can be about Listen, you should be skeptical. It's a bit of a... I started the piece uh, on the website by saying this is either a really nutty idea or a potentially really intriguing idea. And when I put it out there, and of course, I e-blasted it out to my uh, particular subscribers, and it's all on social media, I was fascinated by the fact that 90% of the feedback that I got was people saying... This is not a nutty idea at all. This is intriguing, and you should follow up on this. Now, I haven't talked to Mike Schreiner about this at all because, of course, he'll be obliged to give me a perfunctory, of course I'm not considering this at all. <laughs> I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But but the fact that people from across the political spectrum uh, almost universally thought that this was an intriguing idea that was only appropriate at the current moment because of the fact that the liberals don't have an obvious front runner and because of the fact that the greens seem to be not really going anywhere right now and their federal party is a dumpster fire frankly that's what makes this intriguing for this moment in our political history so i leave it out there well and uh, just to uh, follow up on the dumpster fire remark uh you know whatever else we might call it i mean this would be i think the end of the Ontario Green Party for a time. He's been their most successful leader. If he left, he would take a lot of Green supporters with him, or at least that would be the the hope uh, for the Liberals. Um, So it it would be maybe one path forward for the Liberals, but it would be a a very bleak time for Greens uh, nationwide, I think. I'd make one last point, and that is it is a very unusual thing for provincial parties in the province of Ontario to find their leaders federally. When Patrick Brown did it, when he became the leader of the Ontario PC party, and he was a federal MP at the time, that was highly unusual. There's actually, despite the fact that it's called the Liberal Party of Canada and the Liberal Party of Ontario, or the Conservative Party of Canada and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, there's actually, it's not a two-way highway. There's very little, um, you know, movement in terms of where leaders come from, uh, one to the other. Nate Erskine-Smith may very well 
uh, want to be the leader of the provincial Liberal Party, even though he's a federal MP. Uh, not sure that's ever happened before. It's not to say it couldn't happen this time, but it's an unusual thing in provincial politics in Ontario for the provincial parties to find their leaders elsewhere. It goes the other way. Provincial leader George Drew became the federal leader, George Drew, for the Conservatives. Jagmeet Singh was a deputy leader in Ontario for the NDP, became the federal leader. The path seems to go towards Ottawa, but not from Ottawa towards Toronto. And it's not just elected officials either. Of course, when uh, Justin Trudeau won in 2015 and they had to start assembling a government and they had to start staffing political offices, there was a loud sucking sound, uh, <laughs> you know, where Ottawa uh, staffed up a lot of their offices with people from Kathleen Wynne's government. And McGinty's, which, yeah. The, ex- the exodus took place. Yeah. From Jerry Butts on down. Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. And we want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters. Here now, my quote of the week, and we are, of course, still in the mourning period for Queen Elizabeth II. So we thought it appropriate to go back to the legislature. Here's Premier Doug Ford offering praise for the late monarch. Queen Elizabeth served as Queen of Canada in the Commonwealth from 1952 to 2022. For many people, myself included, we have never lived in a world without Queen Elizabeth. And so it is a truly solemn occasion that we now find ourselves saying goodbye to her after so long. After she ascended to the throne at the age of 25, she would continue to serve for another 70 years. And over those seven decades, which spanned 15 British Prime Ministers, starting with Winston Churchill. The world never stopped changing, but Queen Elizabeth always remained. Doug Ford, in praise of Her Late Majesty, last week. Just as Ontarians' responses to the death of the Queen are mixed, so too were MPP's responses. NDP MPP Salma Makwa, for instance, did not reaffirm his oath to King Charles III in the uh, optional and ceremonial event. Uh, Here's what he had to say about his choice. For Indigenous people, it's a very complex uh, relationship that we have with the Crown. And uh, I say that because, uh, you know, there are things that are attached to the relationship with First Nations. I'm talking about colonialism. I'm talking about oppression. We live it every day as First Nations. That was NDP MPP Salma Makwa explaining why he declined to reaffirm his allegiance to the monarch. Just for clarity, uh, all MPPs swear an oath to the monarch at the start of uh, their term after an election. Mamakwa did in 2018 and again in 2022. But once again, the uh, ceremonial swearing of the oath last week was purely ceremonial. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Matthew O'Mara, and our managing editor is Shahayar Tajvidi. And we should say happy birthday to her. It's her birthday today. Uh, Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Remember, people, COVID isn't over yet, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. And we hope that the two of us being in an enclosed room for an hour doesn't get (laughs) spread it. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed.